All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Merry Christmas, Christian people. I guess it's not specific, is it? It's a holiday season. Merry Christmas to everybody who's getting presents today. How about Merry Christmas to everybody who's being thoughtful about their year or, or reflecting or experiencing gratitude or joy, uh, festive feelings, family niceness. Also, uh, Merry Christmas to those of you who are miserable, who didn't get what you wanted, who can't stand being with their families, who are thinking about leaving, who uh, have had enough. Merry Christmas to you. And you know, specifically for those of you who have had enough, just relax. All right. Just relax. Just let it let it go a little bit. Just ride it out. All right. That the holidays will be over. A new year will be here soon, if that means anything to you. Uh, but it is a good time now to if you if you can, if you got it in you to uh, you know try to be grateful for something. I can't suggest hope. But if you're capable of a little bit of joy or if you have some some uh, some things that about Christmas that that make you feel nice, connected to your past, connected to uh, the the great big uh, what uh, Jesus spirit, whatever it is, man. I mean, grab hold of it for as long as you can. And if it's not for very long, you tried you, it, that that's you know, that's all you can do. So this Christmas, just just give it a try. Give it a try to have those good feelings. Uh, today's show is interesting. Um, for those of you who aren't part of the Full Marin community, we've been doing bonus episodes for Full Marin subscribers every week for a while now. And a lot of them Full Marin episodes are a great place to talk about movies is one of the things we do pretty often. Sometimes Brendan and I talk about other stuff. Sometimes we do uh, bits and pieces of guest interviews that did not make the cut for the, uh, the public interview. Uh, sometimes we, we talk about um, episodes that uh, just happened. We do a little uh, post, uh, a little, what do you call it? Uh, post game chat about my experience talking to certain people. Brendan has his own uh, shows on there. I think there's, well, I think it's one show, but Brendan and Chris Lopresto do a thing on Fridays. Uh, it was wrestling based, but it seems like they've broadened that a bit. It's a whole other world and it's special stuff. Today's episode is a collection of some of the recent Mark on Movies bonus episodes. We're talking about Martin Scorsese's entire filmography, also trying to understand Mulholland Drive, do a little of that, and a talk about Dog Day Afternoon. If you want to hear all our bonus episodes, sign up for The Full Marin by clicking the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. So for many of you, this will be the first time you're hearing this stuff. And it's, uh, it's more stuff in terms of uh, engaged conversations on this particular episode about movies. My dates. Are you interested? I'm at Dynasty Typewriter this Thursday, December 28th. Then I'm at Largo on Tuesday, January 9th. San Diego, I'm at the Observatory North on Saturday, January 27th for two shows. San Francisco at the Castro Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. That might be sold out. Portland, Maine, I'm at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts, 
outside Boston at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. And I'll be in Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th as part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all the tickets that I mentioned here. I'd also like to wish a special Christmas greeting to uh, my uh, my dad's wife, Rosie, and my dad, Barry, who out who are out there in uh, Albuquerque listening, maybe. They, they were listening. Uh, uh, I know that uh, Christmas is a big time over there in that house and that family, so I wanted to do that. And also to my brother, who's a Jew, but he's involved with non-Jews, and Christmas is Christmas. Happy Christmas, Craigie. And to my mommy, who was always like the Christmas. There were even a few times where we had Christmas lights. Perhaps a Christmas tree once or twice didn't stick. But my mom's a big fan of the Christmas vibe. Now, these are all Mark on Movies episodes, and they were exclusive for Full Marin listeners. First, you'll hear me and Brendan talk about Martin Scorsese's filmography right after we both saw Killers of the Flower Moon. Then you'll hear me and my girlfriend, Kit, try to unpack David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. And finally, I, uh, I was very excited about this. I talked with Brendan about the masterpiece, Dog Day Afternoon, which I was, I mean, I watched it two or three times. You know what else I just watched again, probably three times in the last few months? Midnight Run. I just wanted to see the beginning, and there I was, in it. But the Dog Day Afternoon experience over the last year was uh, impactful for me, uh, just in terms of the, the sort of timelessness and transcendence of real art and great movies. All right, so enjoy these chats. So, Scorsese. That's his name. I, I believe it's actually Scorsese. Scorsese. Yes, but... Yeah, I, I have said Scorsese my almost my whole life. Yeah, I mean, I you know I'm not known for my accuracy with names, uh, as you know. But uh, I, maybe if you're Italian, that's what makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So we've both seen uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes, and you have reactions to it. I could tell by your text. I wasn't, I wasn't clear on it. Maybe you were being a little cagey because you knew we were going to talk about it. But going back over his filmography, which I did, um, I've seen almost all of them. There are mm. some I don't remember. Yeah. But the one thing that stood out to me in retrospect, you know, after seeing Killers of the Flower Moon, was the consistency in terms of the spectrum of morality of the Scorsese protagonist Mm -hmm. that they're all you know morally if not bankrupt dubious they're all you know sort of on some path of 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 willful redemption at a certain point and really none of them really make it (laughs) (laughs) you know and to create those characters where they're built 
for you to empathize with somehow, which I think is the amazing thing about all of them for me. Maybe not everybody does, but they, but they, they are, they should, they're, they're built out of humanity. And, and some of them are really, really shitty people. Mm-hmm. Or dumb. Or, well, there's dumb, there, there's the dumb ones, but you yeah. know, most of the time the dumb, you know, does it may play a part in the emotional liabilities of the character or his lack of conscience, but I still think the focus becomes the compromised conscience. Absolutely. And, and the sort of blinders any of these characters uh, have up uh, that they're not aware of that enables them to never quite, uh, you know, get on top of it or, or be, you know, effectively redeemable, at least within the context of the films, right? Oh, well, I mean, like, <laughs> I think what you're, what you're skirting around here is that this guy is a theologian, ultimately. and A Catholic one. Yes, well, you're getting at it. You're getting a catechism, like you as a Jew who has, you know, never gone to Sunday school, yeah. like I grew up going to. Right. You are learning all the same shit just right now. by this guy. Yeah. Uh, but but there's very rarely is there Jesus in the picture. There's one time where he's literally in it, but <laughs> and, uh, and that guy's got problems. Yeah, but he's like it's funny. Like he's the 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 least compromised one. Yeah. The whole movie is about how he has this moral conundrum, <laughs> and he's the he's the least compromised because he's Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that? It, what is, uh, I, I can't. The, the thrust the thrust of that was basically it was Jesus that didn't want to be Jesus, really, and also just the struggle between man and God. Right. right. That's a, a fundamentally. Catholic thing that like every Sunday you ate this cracker that they told you that he's in that he, yeah. we literally just put him in it yeah like it's not a cracker symbolizing him you're eating the dude yeah so like that puts a head trip on any kid who goes through that and this guy has dealt with it his whole life and what I kind of wanted to know from you Mark was what was your journey with him like how what's your m memory of the first time you were aware of him, because you're in a very, I think, advantageous position that I am not in, and that you've been around, you've been alive, and you've been aware of movies and culture his entire career. Ish. Like for, it's I guess for me, it's like uh, Tarantino, right? Like I was a, right. a, a teenager when he made his first movie. I was into it, and then I've just followed the guy's whole career. I didn't have that luxury with Scorsese, but but you did, and and I'm wondering when he came on your radar as a person who you should pay attention to. Well, I think that my if if I have any film nerdum in me, nerdism, yeah, it started in high school. Me and my buddy Devin Jackson you know, became kind of like, you know, film heads. And for me, I think the first movie that opened the door was Raging Bull because I was a sophomore in high school. And I think I saw Raging Bull, you know, before I might have been a senior in high school, before I saw Taxi Driver, uh, before I saw New York, New York, you know, and, and certainly before I saw Mean Streets. And Alice doesn't live here anymore. No matter how many times I see it, does not stay with me. Uh, I've, I've not seen Boxcar Bertha, and I don't know the very early one. But Raging Bull became an obsession with me. 
that that lasts until this day because I remember seeing it and I remember like this is Scorsese he did Taxi Driver but I don't think I had seen Taxi Driver before I saw Raging Bull or Mean Streets and when I saw Raging Bull that sort of opened me up to realizing that that you know film was you know a, a profound art and that you could make a film that looks like nothing else and that you could have a guy be the star of a movie that was a fucking monster, but a human monster. And I became sort of obsessed with that movie. I, I still watch it a couple of times a year. And and I don't even... And also I was very into the the idea of actors, of method acting, of, of great actors and what they would do and what method meant. All that stuff was sort of happening for me in terms of being aware of it in high school. But when I saw, you know, Raging Bull, and I mean, I was totally obsessed with it. I got movie stills from it. You know, I was obsessed with the work that De Niro put in, the weight loss and everything else. Uh, But, you know, we saw it when it opened and just the pace of that movie, the editing of that movie, the choice to make it black and white, the kind of uh, the, the, the force of it. Like, I just I'd never seen anything like it. And the character of Jake LaMotta you know, being a guy like me who was sort of also obsessed with New York a little bit, having not grown up there, but not knowing anything about boxing really, was just that, you know, this guy, you know, was a monster. But when you're you're kind of a, a sensitive dude who, who is not really that type of monster, you're you 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 like those guys. It's like <laughs> his mobsters. Right. And yeah. I and his his literal hard headedness, you know, throughout the movie. It was just like nothing I'd ever seen before. And certainly the you know the way it was shot was nothing I'd ever seen before. But I I really like the 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 moment that comes to me the most there's there's two moments that I always think back on in, in that movie and and one is where they bust him and he's just like in that little jail cell by himself with his big belly hanging out mm. punching the wall just going what I do what I mm. do what are you literally caged animal yeah yeah and and then the other the other one was when he tries to sell the jewels from the belt <laughs> the guy's mm. like well do you have the belt like no no I got this I got this <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like and I'm not even registering necessarily the deeper things because I don't think I registered what I told you at the beginning of this conversation thoroughly until I watched, uh, you know, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm. I, you know, in terms of like, I knew the Catholicism was there. I knew the idea of of sin and the idea of, uh, you know, people being imperfect and, and flaws and the seven deadly sins. Like, you know, I knew all that was there in his work. But then, like, then I go back to Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, and you know, Taxi Driver again. You know, the 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 effect of it. You know, the, the sort of like the the kind of ballsiness of of building a movie around that guy. And by that point, it was sort of, a, a, you know, the equivalent of a meme, you know, Travis Bickle, you know, you talking to me or whatever. Right. But but then you start to realize, like, you know, it's not you're not necessarily rooting for these guys, but you're not not rooting for them. Right. Like the, the fact that he's able to with his partnership with almost all his actors to 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 pull the the ability for them to be empathetic characters is kind of uh, amazing because Bickle out of all of them is is really the only one that gets redemption and he fucking barely deserves it 
well, not only barely deserves it, it's dangerous that he got it because he's just going to go do what he's done again. I mean, that's the last shot of that movie is him looking paranoid in that mirror. Actually, I take that back. That's not the last shot of the movie. You see that. But then the last shot, which is under the credits, is just the street of New York. In New York. Where you're yeah. like, oh, there could be 20 taxi driver guys in yeah. there. 20 Travis Bickles. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like that, you know, the moment where, you know, the cut from when he's on the couch, you know, with his hand covered in blood, you know, and then you, you, know, you cut to, uh, you know, the, the sort of resolution mm-hmm. around the, around Jodie Foster's character. It's menacing. Well, I think there's a difference, though, between those two main movies, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. It's very distinct, right? And what everything you're saying about Raging Bull centers around the idea of the individual and, and yeah. focusing on this guy, like the moral arc of this very, very compromised person. I don't think Taxi Driver is about Travis Bickle's moral arc. I think that's a movie, whereas Raging Bull is about the individual, Taxi Driver is about the collective. That movie is very specifically about us. And, you know, it's funny. You said that, you know, it became almost a meme. It was a thing in popular culture of you talking to me. It got used anytime anybody in a comedy stood in front of a mirror, like pantomiming with a gun or whatever. You talking to me, you talking to me. Roger Ebert is the one who pointed out that the line that never gets quoted is the very next line, and it's the most important one, which is he says, I'm the only one here. Yeah. And that's fundamental to Scorsese's understanding of who this guy is and why a movie should be made about him, right? Like, if you think about the script of that, it's just, you know, Paul Schrader told you this was what I was worried about becoming, right? I was worried about being isolated and and disillusioned, feeling disenfranchised from the world. I was afraid of becoming this guy. Well, that yeah. doesn't mean Martin Scorsese was afraid of becoming that guy, but he fully understood why someone would and what had happened around them because of the world we were living in, because of who that guy Scorsese plays in the back of the cab, yeah. right? Those yeah. people are the ones that lead Travis Bickles to becoming who they are. Sure. And then also the 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 higher purpose is that, you know, the, the fact that there's a crossroads that he's at where it's either assassinate a political figure out of sexual frustration and wanting to make an impact and then, you know, then the shift to to saving uh, the girl, mm-hmm. to saving the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that they, they couldn't be further apart, really. Yeah, yeah. But yet they are on the same spectrum for that guy. And yeah, I mean, I can see it's how it's about us. And I can see how it is about the kind of id of a city and the id of of what we you know, what we hang our hopes on in culture. You know, I mean, I can, in in beliefs or how we see ourselves, how we see accomplishment, you know, what is our moral compass around uh, uh, our our will? Yeah, I mean, I I, I see all that. It's a very dense movie. And by the time I saw it, I was probably in college and trying to understand things. And when I saw Mean Streets, that, that movie never really, you know, came together fully for me. I mean, I liked it. I know it was early and it was raw. And, you know, I guess Keitel is really the protagonist uh, who's, who's, you know, struggling with, uh, with, with whatever his versions of the sins are. But mm-hmm. it's a little more Catholic than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, feel, it feels like uh, Scorsese's starter kit. That's how I yeah, always like in right. Mean Streets. 
But then, of course, the king of comedy, because I was interested in comedy, you know, that became this other thing. You, you, you know, again, you know, so then he takes it to this other level where the guy is fundamentally likable and charming and peculiar who who has to commit a fairly major crime to uh, to to get his personal redemption, which he also gets, actually. Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, uh, uh, Rupert Pumpkin wins. Yes. You know, Jake LaMotta does not. Uh, Travis Bickle does. Um, but well, still. Well, it's funny. You say Jake LaMotta does not. But I am unconvinced that that fat guy sitting in that dressing room doing the lines in front of the mirror yeah, yeah. thinks he's a loser. Like, I think he's like, okay, this, this is just is, where I am. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But the fact is that he's a loser is, yeah, it's, it's that it's about a, a, not only a hard headed fighter, but a stubborn guy to the point of some sort of, you know, narcissistic problem. Yes. You know, it's not, but as long as he's an, not dead, he's, he thinks of himself as a winner. He's won in sure. some way. But that scene where he's trying to hug Joe Pesci. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, and, and that was so many years later, you know, there, that was the, the, the only emotional moment where you do sense that he, he does have some, some guilt. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a fleeting moment. Yeah. You know, but you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll call you. I'll call you. You call me. You know, it, it, it's tragic. And maybe that is just for the audience. Yeah. Now, did you did you see these later movies, though? When like, did you like King of Comedy and, and Taxi Driver? By the time you saw them, were you like keyed into who this guy was or you, you know, you just knew them as movies and you you weren't really uh, thinking about them as a auteur uh, presentation well, no, because I was rooting for I mean, you know, when Raging Bull was at the Oscars. You know, I was I was watching and mm. I was rooting for it. Okay. So and, and I knew that because of Taxi Driver, I knew that this guy was a guy. Right. Right. You know, I knew Coppola was a guy. Okay. You know, I knew like I was aware of this stuff by that point. And then you know when After Hours came out, to me it didn't really you know fit the other ones totally because you know it was clearly a comedy. But but again, that's a guy that you know just wants to get home. <laughs> well, you know the backstory of that, right? Is that he yeah. made it? He was going to make Last Temptation of Christ, and it got it got canceled at the last minute. Like he was, you know, the 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 studio got cold feet because of the controversial nature of it, and they were worried, uh, which turned out being valid because the movie was protested when it finally was made. But uh, but he was he was crushed because he'd put all this production work into you know prep for Last Temptation, and then it was pulled, and he was like, I have to do something immediately. Like I have yeah. to do something that requires zero prep. Basically, I'm just going to dive in to whatever I get my hands on. And it was this script yeah. of After Hours and he made it in like record time. And it feels that way. It's, like, it's to the benefit of the movie. Yeah, like run and gun kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like that movie. I think I'd have to rewatch it. Yeah, I, I saw it again recently and it really plays well. It's yeah. it did not it did not age poorly. It's very good. I do remember the one thing I read into it um, because by that point, you know, I was started, I had started kind of doing comedy or being interested in it. That, that scene where, you know, he's in that gay guy's apartment and mm -hmm. like, I think just to use a phone mm -hmm. and, you know, and he's, he's in, he, they, he's the explaining is, everything. He's explaining, but it's in front of a brick wall. And I'm like, this is a comedy club. This is a, <laughs> this is a riff on comedy. And the gay guy's just looking bored on the couch. Cause I think he just wants to get laid. But to me, I'm like, that's what this is a reflection of.
Yes. And it's funny because it's like it's like he's bombing, but yeah. he won't stop. He has to keep going. <laughs> yeah. To me, it was like, I know what this is. This, is what, this has to be on purpose. That was That's my amazing. whole problem with the film analysis is that I didn't know what, you know, you bring to it and what is actually on purpose. And as I get older, I realize it's almost all what you bring to it. Yes. Yes. Although I will say there's plenty in that movie after hours that is, you know, directly from his like, you know, fully Catholic understanding of hell and purgatory and being trapped. And yeah. as his taxi driver, the first thing you see of that taxi, is it coming through the smoke? Like it's yeah. emerging from like, you know, a Stygian inferno. Right. Yeah. And right. Uh, that we will, we will get back to that in killers of the flower moon. So just put a pin in that, but this yeah. guy's a full understanding of hell as it is taught in, in Catholicism is in almost all of his movies. Yeah. Yeah, and like I don't know, you know, I the color of money I thought was good. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good version of a a movie that anybody could have made. Yep. And Last Temptation, I remember really enjoying because John Lurie was in it. <laughs> yeah, but see, it's so funny because like that movie to me was the that was the final straw for me. I guess that's not the way to put it, but that was when I saw Last Temptation of Christ, which was probably around 1997. So roughly, you know, nine years after it was made. Yeah. That was when I was like, oh, this is my guy. This yeah. Mar Martin Scorsese. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and I had seen Goodfellas by that point. I'd seen, uh, I think Cape Fear I'd already seen. I, I don't know if I watched Taxi Driver by the time I was that age, but watching Last Temptation was the moment where I was like, I see myself in this guy, not in his movies, in him, like in, in who he is and how he thinks. I yeah. get this, and he's like my guy. This is my new guide to life. Right. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna right. pay attention to what he has to say. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I if I ever felt that connection to him as an artist, other than you know, I knew that there was nobody like him and what he could do with film and the layers of it. Um, and I, it was definitely not a world that I could necessarily relate to, but I uh, always look forward to and, and still watch whenever I can uh, what he puts out in the world. Like I'll watch Goodfellas on regular TV. Well, I was going to ask you, is that like the, is that the most watched of his movies for you? Goodfellas? Yeah. That in Raging Bull, you know, for sure. Um, and I, I watch King of Comedy, but like, I, I, it doesn't hold up as well, but yeah, Raging Bull and Goodfellas, you know, cause Goodfellas, it, it's really, to me, it's about whatever he was able to pull together so thoroughly between the way he shoots, the way he edits and the layers of music and the way he shoots violence to me, like that was, um, everything was in that one yeah. for me. That's, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, his, I, I believe his greatest movie. I believe it's probably, it's very arguably the greatest American movie ever made. And, uh, and also amazingly rewatchable. You could watch it oh, at any time. Any, because it's, it's hilarious. That's, um, that's also when you said, you know, about how he edits, obviously it's in concert with his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, who I think that's the era, like Goodfellas is the moment where obviously, you know, it's, there's there's movies that came before that where they were collaborating, but Goodfellas is the moment where you can see how he, the two of them are symbiotic, how you can't really have one without the other. That the the her understanding of his language yeah. and his pacing yeah. 
it's yep. it's a it's a gift it's a gift to have a partner like that who just understands you and you can you you don't have to verbalize what your vision is yeah i can definitely see that but it it is interesting now that you know i bring that up that you know joe pesci in raging bull and in goodfellas arguably a comic character mm-hmm. arguably oh sure and you, you know and much more violent in goodfellas but, you know, because when you see the turn that Pesci takes in Casino, it's like, that's a fucking monster. Mm-hmm. And he was a monster in Goodfellas, but he was an endearing little fuck and he got his, but he was funny. Yes. Well, that's, I mean, that's always going to be, you know, if anything, I think that's the knock on Casino is that the the fun is missing, right? And yeah. it, it's it's almost relentless. Just this, I like. I guess you could argue that Las Vegas is fun, right? So that's always there. This ever present nature of like this this place, the temptation part of his of of Scorsese's thesis is always there. And for the guys in Goodfellas, it the temptation is aligned with their personalities. These are fun guys. Like they yeah. they're they're a good hang. So of course they're going to want to live just by their appetite. But then you got, you know, the I mean the sin of pride is really what Goodfellas or Casino's about, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, more than yeah. anything else. Yeah, because he could have gotten out of that no problem if it wasn't for the fact that he always kept putting himself out there. And those, the clothes, yeah. that, that character, that kind of like, you know, cowardly, uh, you know, mob affiliated guy who relied on the mob. I mean, that was, you know, the sort of comedic character because he's, he's, a, you know, he's ridiculous. It's so amazing how different it is from the Goodfellas character. Whereas Pesci is similar in both, right? He's, he's, yeah. you kind of map the one guy on top of the other and yeah. then you just turn the dial a little bit. But De Niro in Casino is such a loser and a schlub, and and you feel it every second he's around. You're like, they, they, I feel like they make fun of him for it. They're like, like, oh, yeah. this sad they do sack. all the time. Yeah, well, the tightly wrapped guy with his cigarette holder, the mobsters are making fun of him all the time. Yep. Now I got to listen to the Jew, yes. you know? <laughs> Jew fuck. Now, I love The Wolf of Wall Street. I, I love I, it. I think it's one of his best movies. I think it's it's, it's, like it's in the top to, three. Yeah, back to Goodfellas form in pacing, music, and like I just watched it again night before last in a hotel room with commercials and dubbed, and because <laughs> they have cable in the room, so I don't even remember what network it was on. But I'm watching it and I'm waiting for stuff. But the balance of comedy and horror and like. That that movie's a comedy. There's no fucking way it's not a comedy. Of course, and uh, and that guy totally morally compromised, but totally excited. But the well, maybe the, he's about, maybe the worst guy that Scorsese has depicted. Like yeah. the, the most irredeemable worst person. Yeah, and the whole movie is about showing at every step of the way he's lying. That this thing that happened is not true. This yeah. thing that happened didn't it didn't turn out well. It's like yeah. every step he fucked up, and it gets you all the way to the end where people are still paying their hard-earned cash to listen to him because they think he's such an expert and will make them all rich. It's like Trump. There you go. And then that movie was 2013, three years yeah. before Donald Trump be- becomes the president. Yeah, and the movie, like, the the maleness of that movie, you know, given that, it, I, I mean, there is definitely throughout almost every one of it, he's exploring 
the male psyche with oh and like this question. is this was a this was a movie about toxic masculinity before people were even talking about that but the but but what was known as the fun kind of toxic masculinity <laughs> Like they, they, every shot as the movie goes on of that trading floor. Yeah. They, they, at some point there are guys doing acrobatics. Yeah. It's like a backflip, like standing yeah, backflip. It's just <laughs> testosterone driven shit show. Just the, just the shots. Like when they go across that room and these like ape like guys, especially that one actor, you see him all the time. Ethan Suplee. He's got the yeah. huge forehead, the brow. Yeah, yeah, he's losing his yeah. hair. And he's like, yeah, yeah. like an animal. <laughs> They're all like that. And then the one guy who's got a fish, you know, Middle Ditch plays the guy with the fish. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Jonah Hill's like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're cleaning your fish take now? And then he eats the fish. It was, that movie is insane. And it's really, when when Scorsese can, you know, cut like that and shoot like that, and there's that pace to the thing, it's fucking great. And again, much like my affinity for Taxi Driver, it's as much of a uh, an indictment of the collective as that movie oh, is. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and Margot Robbie is spectacular. Yeah, and Jonah Hill is is great. He's great with those teeth. But everybody's good. It's like one of those. I mean, Killers of Flower Moon is the same way. These people show up and they're there for a couple of scenes, and you're like, oh my, like Rob Reiner is the greatest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's calling right now? It's on a Tuesday. Where he's watching the Equalizer as he's yeah, furious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> oh, they, yeah, they're 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 all kind of spectacular. The two Quaalude scenes, or that one Quaalude sequence, where he drives, where the, where the old Quaaludes kick. But he yeah. drives, and then he goes home, and he tries to get Jonah Hill off the phone, and they're both on Quaaludes. Yeah, yeah. And then Jonah, and he wants to kill Jonah Hill, but then Jonah <laughs> Hill gets the ham sandwich stuck in his throat, and the Popeye bit where he he, he sees Popeye, and then he does the cocaine. He like Popeye. <laughs> It's fucking hilarious. That might be the best comedy in any one of his movies. Like that oh, specific it, it's, scene. It, it, yeah, because it is so, you know, it's it's not like a guy trying to be funny like uh, Rupert, but it's it's like he's literally like, we're going to shoot a comedy yeah. in, in this movie. This is going to be the comedy. Yeah. He's going to be at the country club. He can't talk. He's got to get to his car. Like there, well, there just are him, other people. Him crawling down the steps yeah. like a, like a trying worm. Trying to roll. Yeah. <laughs> He couldn't move anything. He was completely debilitated. But there, but nobody comes to help him. And I realized that the other when I was watching it the other night, and I'm like, oh, he knew. I mean, the, he he. Someone would have helped him, but he's sort of lying. like, yes, no. This is this is, <laughs> yeah. This is how this is going to go. Yeah. And that guy from uh, Friday Night Lights, he's very good in that. Oh yeah, Kyle Chandler. Yes. Yeah, he's very. Is he all right? I don't know. That is guy. He- is there something wrong with him? Oh, I'm no, I think sure. it was a character. No, he had a heart problem in uh, Manchester by the sea. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> You're trans- transposing the, 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 the movie yeah. where he died in New England from yeah. uh, COPD. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is he all right? Yeah. I mean, I heard he had a thing. No, it was in a movie. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. I heard his brother-in-law, the whole family died in a fire. <laughs> it's so, you know, it's funny. The other day we were talking about Scorsese and I'm talking to Lipsight, you know, who's, you know, can be one of the great, uh, yeah, you know, like it, it was just, it, you know, we were talking about Scorsese movies. I'm like, well, what's your favorite Scorsese movie? And he said, honestly, Silence. And I said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. That's ridiculous. Did You're he really ridiculous. mean it? Yeah, and he's trying to defend it. I'm like, no, you can take that and just blow it out your fucking academic ass. You're just saying that to be to what? What do you get from saying silence? 
It's the best Scorsese movie. Go fuck yourself. Uh, there's always one. There's always one. <laughs> it's like that guy who says, I don't really love the Beatles. You know, just leave my house. Yeah, right. What does right. that even mean? Yeah, there's a couple of B-sides that are okay. Yeah, yeah. fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Yeah, that's right. That's the guy that's like, what's your favorite Beatles song? Rain. <laughs> <laughs> Not even on an album. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, but Do you know I, what, I, though? I Do you know that that's actually Ringo Starr's answer? Is it? Yeah, they said, what's your favorite Beatles song? He said, Rain. <laughs> okay. Well, he's allowed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we get to The Irishman, which you love. I do love the Irishman. I love it, you know, right in the top tier of the. It, it's it, it's of a piece with all the, um, you know, crime films that he's done. Totally, Goodfellas and Casino, and even The Wolf of Wall Street. But it's interesting because you know, you know, De Niro plays a dumb shit stooge, a loyal, uh, a loyal henchman. He's basically uh, playing the DiCaprio part in Killers it, of the Flower exactly. Moon. It's the same guy. And also a bad liar. Like that's the that's the thing I love about the Irishman. It's like the whole thing's probably a fucking lie, right? Yeah. Like this guy is making up that he's he's like the zealot of American history. He's there for every instance of something happening, and it's this completely unremarkable, uh, you know, uh, yes man who can barely formulate a sentence at any given time. You know, the only thing that he was capable of and honored was loyalty yeah and and you know and he he gave it to that joe pesci character who who gave him a life primarily because he had no conscience about killing people but it is interesting that how the memory works and and what happens when you live a certain life and you're because that character unlike dicaprio uh it's seemingly maybe until the end it, it seems that you know once he lost the love of his daughter that he did feel bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think the, uh, the codas without getting too much into the ending of killers of the flower moon, the codas of both of those movies are very similar. The, yeah. it, the, 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 and if you think about the ending of the Irishman of him just having to kind of sit there by himself as the custodian of his own legacy, which is, has amounted to nothing. He's just, yeah. he went out and picked out his own casket. Right. Yeah. And he's just got to sit there by himself with the door open, hoping maybe something redemptive comes by and it never is going to. In the form of his daughter. Yeah. But like, but, but the myth he has made for himself that he was the prime mover of the, 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 the last 50 years of organized crime. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so ridiculous when you say it, but that's literally what the movie is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So we get to the new one. Yeah. So you saw it in an ideal environment though. Giant screen, IMAX, IMAX. great sound. Only, I mean, this is it. an ideal movie for that. It's the only way to see movies. Generally, like I, yeah, I, yeah. Like, because like it's what I remember movies were. Maybe because I was a smaller guy, but it was like those are the that screen doesn't seem big to me. No, like it, it seems like this is the right size. For exactly. A movie. Yes. Um. What What was what What kind of impact did it have on me? Well, what I liked was that, you know, I didn't fundamentally feel it as, um, signature Scorsese, you know out of the gate because of, I mean, I think because of the terrain and because of, 
you know, the expanse of it because of the subject matter. So I found it kind of interesting that I didn't read it cinematically as specifically Scorsese. I knew that we were entering a big movie Mm -hmm. and, and I, and for the first half hour to an hour where he's laying the pipe and you kind of get a sense of this guy, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how I felt about that movie or Leonardo DiCaprio's real character, but I knew that the way it was handling Native history was something I never saw before. Right. That I, I did not know about their position within the culture of oil in Oklahoma. I didn't know the story. I didn't know that they were sort of obviously sold a bill of goods but were enabled to exist at a class uh, that obviously they had never known before with money. And I like the, the sort of Americanization of Native expectations around that kind of early period of capitalism. I liked all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But once De Niro comes in as this benevolent fucking Satan, you know, I knew that that something was up. And then it became, you know, right when that first conversation with DiCaprio, you're like, oh, this is the Irishman. This is this is the loyal lunkhead. Uh, you know, who's going to to do his, you know, this old man's bidding, his uncle's bidding, no matter what, just because... See, the thing that didn't work for me was that you, that De Niro did not play the love of money that he says he has. And and for me, that was tricky. De Niro didn't play it? Or DiCaprio? No, I mean, uh, Di- DiCaprio. Like, I thought that he, you know, built that character so deeply... That, you know, when he actually falls in love with Lily Gladstone's character, which I believe he did, even after you know that De Niro told him to marry her for for the... For for real. No, I believe it too. Yeah. You know, I believed that. But throughout the movie, you know, it became hard for me to believe the the greed that was implicit in the script for that character. I knew he was afraid of Robert De Niro and he believed that he was stupid that that I think that DiCaprio really deferred to the intelligence of whatever De Niro was mm-hmm. and that moral kind of uh it's not even a gray area you know the the I think that the racism of it where that De Niro's character I believed really thought that he was doing good for the most part for the natives but he also didn't think they were people Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the undercurrent of the whole thing is that the, you know, just right from the get go, when you find out that these people have inherited uh, all this oil on the land that they were shunted to, uh, yeah. this terrible land, and the, the oil money now is, uh, you know, has made them tremendously wealthy with these head rights, but also they are still kind of wards of the state. They have to be deemed incompetent and have money managers, right? So the entire structure of this, of, of the, of the Osage nation with, uh, you know, the wealth that they've accumulated is still mediated by white racists. Essentially like the one guy is the head of the Ku Klux Klan who is managing the money. But that's what's interesting because the 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 government is incompetent and distant. Yes. But what you know, but the people that were in power were capitalists. Yes. And and I think what's interesting in there is that, you know, right right away, you know, De Niro's character is like, oh, fuck the government. Yeah. They're, they they they're useless. And and then you have this kind of that the Freemason thing in the middle of everything, 
to me was was brilliant because I, yes. I would never have seen it coming. But that is the brotherhood of capitalism. Yes. So, yes. you know, so what you're dealing with there is that these guys were like these guys were the guys that sort of like, you know, manifest destiny is like we're going to we're going to take it all. Yeah. And we're going to figure out how to do it. And we're going to do it with or without the government's consent. And the government will stay away because we're managing this situation that they right. don't want to manage. And then we'll fucking own them. Right. That was deep stuff. You know, a, a movie like this, it it relies on being able to take its time. It relies on presenting you with the the whole lay of the land. So that then when when inciting incidents happen and things are occurring, you've had what feels like a lot of time to become adjusted to this time warp that you're in. And it's like, I hear people complain about the length of it. It's like, I could have watched what? it for another hour. And it's like, yeah. what are you, what else are you going to do with your time? I guarantee you that if this movie was two hours, as opposed to three and a half, the other 90 minutes of your day would be worse than the 90 minutes that this genius provided you. Like, look, Lily Gladstone, you know, held that thing together. Like she is the emotional core, but also she she carries the movie. She's the she's the center of the film, absolutely. And not just the moral center, but the magnetism of the film. You cannot stop looking at her. She is luminous. She reminded me of Meryl Streep in The Deer Hunter or just one of these you know, undeniable stars, these people with a magnetism that you can't take your eyes off of. And, and it's also the character she's playing is so regal and such a fascinating part of American history that, you know, this was a person who existed and was deemed incompetent by the government, despite the fact that she's smarter than everyone else around her and, and more capable too and intuitive, uh, and to be able to hold all that with very little dialogue is a tremendous thing. It's pretty horrifying the way that it's it really focuses on. I think the thing that makes it more menacing than other genocide movies around Native people is, you know, the military action is is what the entire sort of cowboys and Indians mythology was built on. Mm -hmm. But this is really specifically about capitalism and and you know the the beginning of a still existing systemic racism in the name of big business right right and and this is the amount of human sacrifice that involved in a very intimate way around a culture of people whereas now thousands and thousands of people you know die because of lack of regulation because of systemic racism in terms of business practices and, and, and products and whatever. And it, this is, is a very intimate sort of understanding of the roots of, of not like, you know, these are savages, these are this, these are that, but literally how capitalism was fundamentally built on, on racist policy and the dehumanization of people and, and, it, and it goes on. It and in that happens. sense, I agree with you that the De Niro character you know, believes he's just, he's, he's doing the right thing. This is what he's allowed to do. And he, he, he thinks these Osage are beautiful people and it doesn't matter that he's killed a hundred of them. He's just there to be their friends. And that's what a devil is. You know? Yeah. But I also will say the Scorsese hellscape 
is so perfectly rendered in this movie. And it all boil, it all culminates in that scene where he's committing insurance fraud on his cattle ranch, right? And he's lit the ground on fire. Yes. But it's like up until that, you think about it, it's like this everything was basically normal. I mean, there's murders going on, sure. But meanwhile, like they're having weddings, they have drag races, there's a parade going on, everybody meets at the pool hall. It's like normalcy and life. Then these lawmen show up. So it's the first time you really get outsiders in this movie. Outsiders meaning not just the white men, but not the white men who lived there, right? Yeah. So this, this the Washington shows up and the POV just shifted 10 degrees. This thing looks like a fucking Bosch painting now, right? Like yeah. through the through the window, you see this like these black demons, these silhouetted demons, like this guy, this one shot of the guy with like a, a shovel or a pickaxe over his shoulders and he's got his arms on it. It looks like that shot out of Fantasia in the, the night on Bald Mountain when the the, the demons are, are, are dancing in the flames. And also the nature, which we see today, of, of this sort of like short money grift that like, you know, they're, you know, they're talking about land rights uh, you, you know, forever, but he's still doing insurance scams. Yeah, there's. Whole, that, I think that's probably how he made a lot of his money was through insurance fraud, and and just the, that that just still goes on where he's like complaining about twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Which okay, granted, it was a lot of money in there then, but that's the nature of this type of greed. It's like the entire Trump administration, all those guys that he put into, you know, those positions. They were always fishing for couch change. Always yeah, seven grand. Yeah. But that's the nature of that guy, that person and corruption, right? When you, when and corruption, corruption right. starts, then everyone wants a piece because it's unfair to not get it. Right. Right. So right, that's right. the chain reaction of corruption. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, I got to see it again, obviously. Yeah. That's good. Like I said, next time we should, sometime we should talk about uh, his documentaries. Cause I think uh, there's okay, a lot we'll of do stuff it. there. And maybe I got to rewatch uh, Silence just to load up a little bit to yell at my friend. Yeah, let's have you and Sam on to talk about it. <laughs> it was like, it was sort of like, you fuck. <laughs> you can't. Not allowed. It's not yeah. allowed. Not allowed. All right, so now I, th- I think I should establish at the beginning of this conversation that you are obsessed uh-huh. with David Lynch to the point where you walk by his house. I only the one time. Yeah, I know, but you sought it out. I didn't seek it out. All right. I didn't seek it out. Let me let me explain. Yeah. Let me explain. Right. At some point during the pandemic, uh-huh. I Googled where does David Lynch live th- right. because I was curious whether he lived in Los Angeles. Right. I did not expect Google to provide me with his exact home address. Right. <laughs> and once you see the house and realize that it's the house from Lost Highway, yeah. it becomes difficult to forget that that's the house. I mean, so, once you see it because you went there because you knew David Lynch? Well, no, you see it on the... I Googled, where does David Lynch yeah. live? Oh, and and like, boom, there was his front you know, door yeah, yeah. and the exact address. And it was like, here. And I was like, oh, I know where that is. So <laughs> now that you've moved into the neighborhood ish yeah yeah ish um you just walk by there once only the one time did you linger out front like a weirdo absolutely not absolutely you were aware of that i was aware of that that you shouldn't that i shouldn't Uh uh-huh 
that I shouldn't. Did you walk slowly to look and see if he's around, like no, outside? No, not at all. There was oh. a car in the driveway, and I thought, oh, God, and I kept, yeah. well, I kept moving. But I, I did... No, I'm not going to actually say anything about the front of the house. There was a facet that I appreciated, but I'm yeah. not going to say that what? because I don't want to dox him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, the way the numbers? Well, I mean, how can you dox him? You looked it up on Google. It's it's since been removed, though, which is good. Oh, this was how many times do you look for it? <laughs> I, well, I was showing someone that, oh, okay. like, because shortly thereafter, I was like, I can't believe that you can just Google his. That seems inappropriate. And then it had thankfully been taken down by then. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have people that visit my house occasionally. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Uh-huh. We won't get into that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, look, now, despite what you may think. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with David Lynch. I know that. I liked it. I was, I'm looking here at his filmography. <sighs> I've seen Eraserhead. I've seen The Elephant Man. I didn't see Dune. I've seen Blue Velvet. Do you I saw, remember? I'm wait, sorry. I, I saw Wild at Heart. Mm. Did not see Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. <gasps> saw Lost Highway. Saw The Straight Story. Yeah. Saw Mulholland Drive. Saw Inland Empire. Now You saw Inland Empire? I did. That's with Laura Dern, right? Yeah, you sat through that? Yeah, barely. I got, but see, like I must have sat through Mulholland Drive at some point, too, before watching it again. Because you remembered the little people. Yeah, and I thought that was from Inland Empire. Yeah, well, it sounds it seems like in, something that comes from Inland, Inland Empire. Inland Empire is about like an actress, right? And yeah, Inland Empire is Laura Dern is an actress, and there's a fucking scene in it that um of Jeremy Irons and he's the a film director. Right. I'm just mentioning this real quick, but there's a scene in it where Jeremy Irons is trying to direct on set. Yeah. And David Lynch is in the background shouting things, pretending to be an electrician having a problem. Yeah. And Jeremy Irons breaks on camera because oh, really? of yeah, but they funny. keep they keep it in though. <laughs> I enjoy uh David Lynch as an actor, and I believe I watched Twin Peaks, although I all of it. Oh really. Really? Yep. I'm impressed. When it was uh, happening. I'm impressed. Why? Because that doesn't seem like something you would sit through. I don't know. It was like episodic and interesting. Were and you I... sober at the time? What year did it come out? Hold on. Let me look. He's made a lot of short films, man. He sure has. Twin Peaks, 90 to 91, uh, 93. It was only, oh, it's it was only six episodes? Four? It was only... He no, he like... was only involved in the first season oh. um, and, and a couple episodes in the second season. I was pretty newly sober if it was 90 to 91 wow. and then after that. No, wait, was I? No, I wasn't. I wasn't sober at all. That makes more sense. <laughs> I wasn't in the least bit sober. <laughs> that for, makes more sense. For another nine years or so. See, there eight you or go. nine years. Now I can imagine you sitting through it. But yes. I saw Eraserhead yeah, as a midnight movie and then yeah. I watched it again as a regular movie. Yeah. Um, you know, Elephant Man, I'm a fan of. But here's the point. And you and I watched recently, we went to the movie theater. Yeah. And and watched that one. Uh, Lost Highway. Lost Highway. Yeah, we did that for my birthday last January. Right. And then we saw right? Twin Peaks in a theater. No, we did not. Not Twin Peaks. I mean, uh, Blue Velvet in a the theater. We did see you, Blue. We saw Blue Velvet at the New Bev. Yeah. And you haven't, you hadn't seen it in a no, theater. No, I, I had not in a theater. No, yeah. Big no. difference. Yeah. I'd, film. I'd never seen any Lynch films in a theater before going with you to Lost Highway and Blue wow. Velvet. So that was sick. That's a, that's a good experience. Yeah. But it turns out, because, all right, so Mulholland Drive. Now, generally, we talk about horror movies. I think it could be classified as a horror movie. Yeah. Right? I, I agree with that. How, what else would you classify it as? Uh, well, David Lynch classifies it as a love story, which it is, but it's it's also, in 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 my opinion, a horror movie. <laughs> now you see, right right there, out of the gate, it's like he like to me that's that's snarky and 
kind of hilarious that he calls it a love story. It's a joke. I love him. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I love the snark. Yeah. But when I watched Lost Highway, it was okay. There was a story. I didn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of a switch up to where it didn't kind of make sense to me. Lost Highway is kind of a Mobius strip. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, And this one. I was on board. I was watching it. It looked good. I liked the stylistic elements. I liked mm-hmm. all the little bits and pieces of it. Yeah. But then in like the last act, it takes a switch. People are in different roles, playing people you're kind of familiar with, either as corpses or other characters. And uh, and then I'm sort of like, what's happening? And what's, you know, what's with the box with the key? <laughs> Who's who? What's happening? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, not unlike other Lynch projects, I just got uh, aggravated. (laughs) And I tried to make sense of it. And I know that, you know, I was told, Sam Lipside said, well, there's a dream logic to it. And it's like, okay, so when I wake up and dreams are still fresh in my mind, I try to figure them out. And you know what? I can't. Hmm. And uh, so I'm I'm not going to say it's a bad movie. but. But for me, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> for me, it was not uh, it was not a great experience because I just I end up frustrated at the end. And when I go over the parts and stuff, I can be like, "Well, that was a good part. This is a good part. That was interesting. That was acted well. That was uh, you know I like this view of Hollywood and whatnot. It's a Hollywood movie. It's a Hollywood movie. But uh, but you claim that there is sense to be made. Yeah, there is. There is. I mean, look, he he has never come out and said this because he yeah. doesn't like to he doesn't like to uh, have authorial intent over his own films because the point of his films is to interpret them through your own you know consciousness. I get that, but what's but, his problem with story? There's a great story in what here. What is it? Okay, all right. A girl um, goes to Hollywood to make a to make a break. Shush for a second. <laughs> Do you remember? I'm. By the way, I guess we should tell your listeners we're going to spoil the shit out of this film it's if they a, haven't. The movie came it's out. It's 22 years old. Right. Yeah, but um, I, mean, I don't think you can spoil it because it's still not going to make sense. No, it is. Do you, Maybe you should have spoiled it for me before I watched it. Okay. Do you, I wanted to and I offered to, but you said no. I've seen it, and then you. All, right. <laughs> All I remembered was the little people and thinking like that's stupid. I fucking love the little people. Go ahead. They freak me out. Okay. Do you remember how it ends? Oh, so the see. Like, maybe I need to be, like, on weed. No, you don't. All right. I mean, it's better that okay, way. But no. do you remember how it ends? Um, yeah, it ends on Mulholland Drive. Okay, but... Kind of. But do you remember the, the final bit with, with uh, Naomi Watts? Where she kills the lady? She kills herself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Because the little people were bothering the, her. She's, she's they in, got big and they, and they annoyed her to suicide. They got big and they annoyed her to suicide. Right. That's right. And she's in that bed when she shoots herself, remember? In the bed that they saw the other corpse in earlier in the movie. Yeah. That had killed herself. Yeah. So, th- But it wasn't her that you could tell. Well, it it ends up okay. Okay, so the movie is super color coded, and you have to kind of color coded. Color coded. You have to kind of be careful and pay attention. And there are clues. Colors? Yeah, the colors. Okay. Um, because the bed that she falls into, and then pulls the drawer and grabs the handgun out of the drawer and shoots herself, is a bed with a magenta pink bed sheet set yeah. and a and a nasty avocado green throw blanket. Yeah. In the beginning of the movie, the yeah. first shot is the jitterbug sequence with the awesome Angelo Badalamenti music in yes, the background. Yeah, yeah. The second shot is someone's point of view falling down into that bed. So and so it begins with the jitterbug sequence and then that. Yeah. And then 
Mulholland Drive in almost black and white, that zoom in of the street sign. And then all of a sudden you're with this character in the back of a car who mm-hmm. is, uh, mm-hmm. what's her name, Laura Laura Herring? Laura Herring's character, yeah. who we don't know her name at this and point. And she doesn't either. But this is what I'm saying. So the the context of the film is that Naomi Watts is playing a character named Diane Selwyn, who yeah. went to Hollywood and had a very terrible time and ended up doing some very terrible things because of it. Diane Selwyn kills herself with a gun, mm. and as she's dying, this is my theory at least, as she's dying and her brain is sparking out, this is the fever dream that her dying brain is having to comfort her. It's a mix of fantasy of what she wanted to happen in Hollywood and memories Mm -hmm. and rearranging people that she's seen in her life Mm -hmm. into other roles Mm -hmm. to make herself more of a heroine. Mm -hmm. And it's just a sort of comforting dopamine trip that she is going on during the very brief, quick process of dying. So the first, like, you know, two hours of the film is this poor girl's, you know, dying dream. And the final half hour are the events leading up to her taking her life, the real events. So her character, in the end, in that apartment, all kind of strung out. That's reality. Oh, that's that's where she ended up in Hollywood. Yeah. So we don't know, and it's not necessarily important that did she stay at her aunt's house? Did things go bad? I mean, like, like there is a is there a story in there that we? Yeah, it's it's revealed in the dinner scene um, on Mulholland Drive. She's talking to the older woman whose name is Coco, and she tells the real story. The real story is that she won a jitterbug contest that led to her trying to become an actress. When her aunt in Canada died, she left her money that Diane used to go to Hollywood. Right, Diane met. This other upcoming actress, Kamala Rhodes, at an audition for a movie called The Sylvia North Story. Yeah. They became friends and lovers. Right. Um, but then Kamala got big. Betty yeah. didn't. Right. Um, Kamala got attention from this director that Justin Betty wanted. So, yeah, Justin Thoreau. Yeah. That Betty wanted so desperately to to, you know, have the the roles that he was giving Kamala. Right. And at the same time, she was losing her lover uh to this director right. who was taking a romantic interest in her. So that's the real story oh, okay. it's all revealed in that dinner scene so the other story about justin Theroux, you know not being able to make the movie because of the weird not being able to cast it the way he wanted to yeah. and that was like she wanted that role it's a dying cynics fantasy about all the excuses and mysterious dark mm-hmm. hollywood reasons that she didn't end up the way she wanted it- so tell me more about this color coding what's with the box I think, um, I mean, listen, I'm not an expert and I don't know, but I think that the color blue kind of represents awakening Mm. um, in the movie. Mm. And so when we meet Rita, she's got the blue key. We don't see the box until almost the end. Yeah, Um, with the scary homeless person. With the scary homeless person. So what, you did this sort of, like, you've gone over, you've done a forensic analysis of this movie? I've watched this movie so many times. I love this movie. (laughs) Yeah? It's so fun to to watch over and over and find new things. Why, because you keep finding things? Yeah. Yeah, like the last time I watched it was the first time I noticed, and I think this is, I, I completely think that this is intentional, but in that diner scene in Winkies. Which one, the opening scene? The 
Or the one where she goes back and zooms the, on the name the, tag. The, the opening scene with Patrick Fischler yeah. where he ta- where he describes the dream of the man behind the diner and says yeah. he's the one who's doing it, which is one of my favorite lines. That's so mysterious. What is that? I doing what? I don't know. Like, is he the one causing this pain? And who's the other guy is, he's talking to? Does that guy come back? I I've read on the I've read on the internet that that guy's supposed to be his therapist. Okay. That he that he dragged to Winkies. Okay. All <laughs> but, right. but I don't know for sure. Um, but so the last time I watched it, I noticed for the very first time that when they're having that diner scene, as the friend gets up to pay the check, yeah. the camera actually tilts down for a second to linger on their eaten meal yeah. of, of eggs and bacon. And that comes and, back. Well, no, then it cuts to them getting up and leaving and then from, from the opposite side. And then the camera just slightly tilts down again. And this time the table they were just at is perfectly clean and set, which I don't think is an accident. Or if it was an accident initially, I think it was a an editorial choice. Yeah. Like, I think it's a noticed thing by Lynch. Which That's means just what? my opinion. Which means that they were never there to begin with. They were a dream. This is okay. a dream happening for Diane in the Winky setting. Oh, so that's, okay. So, yeah. here, you this know, is a, he said, I've already had this dream twice, and I think that this is the third dream that he's having. And in it, he's just, this is, this but is he's my part opinion. of what's her name's dream. Yeah, he's part of what's her name's dream. Why? How's he fit in? Because just he, she saw him in passing. Oh, that's right. In, in that scene where she's talking to She the, saw him in passing at the Winkies. At the, she just at, at the cash register yeah, looking at her. Yeah. She just she, there's a bunch of people that sort of and I think the thing they have in common is yeah. whether or not they're doing it intentionally. The way they look at her in the moment makes her feel inferior. And she fills them in later to to play small roles. Like there's I fucking took notes on this because I was so fucking excited. But like the people at that dinner party later yeah. in the movie, um Angelo Badalamenti is at that dinner party. Yeah. The the this is the girl girl is at that dinner party. The cowboy is at that dinner yep. party. Um, the waitress, yep. um, the the Patrick Fischler, they're all like in these scenes. Fischler's there? No, he's not at the party. He's at the diner. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like just these very All the brief... people that you've seen in different roles really throughout the movie or in, or in insidious as, as like the cowboys like uh, – creepy, weird yeah. character. It's almost like The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's having a dream and then she wakes up and says, I had a dream and you were there and you were there and you were there and that is David Lynch's favorite movie. It is. Yeah. Okay, fine. But see, I think that David Lynch gets a lot of leeway by, okay, so you picked through this and, and it all makes sense to me, but what if I don't want to fucking do that work and I'm just a guy that enjoys movies? Is it my job to allow him to rationalize this nonsense by saying it was a dream? No, I don't think so. I think that you can enjoy the movie on a on a subconscious level. I think it's fucking hysterical. That whole fucking drawn out scene with the assassin and shooting the extra bullet through the wall and then yeah, having that. Was that funny. Yeah. Like I, I think that you can feel this movie as but, well as understand it on like, an analytical movie. I feel level. like that feels like a reality frame. That didn't feel like a dream. I yeah, you know, that one It feels I, like that guy's story is is real. I think that that guy is a real he's a he's an assassin in both the dream and reality. And I don't know how good of an assassin he is in reality. But in the dream, he has to be kind of a bumbling assassin for it to make sense that uh, Rita, quote unquote, got away. Well, so, she, so like... she comes up with these, you know, she, she, her brain is dying. Not all of it is going to make sense. I don't think all of it is is key. I get that. To well, the fa- well, the fact that she, well, well, the fact that he was after Rita, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But it feels like that perhaps this sort of the initial crime he does to kill that guy to get that black book, yeah, was something that maybe the real 
Naomi Watts character was party of or or knew about because that seemed to be like genuine backstory it, it didn't it wouldn't add no, up as a dream no no it, it's in the dream because see in the dream that guy that he kills um is in the car crash that gets uh camilla rhodes run away oh and i think it's um i think it's implied that he finds the black book in that car crash i think that's why the assassin has to he has to get the book and kill the girl i think you know oh so yeah so i think it's all part of the dream oh and the black book i guess in a in dream language represents her connections yeah yeah. And why she's where she is. Why she needs to get gone. Because well, in the because in the dream it's but it, but it also represents that she's at a different level in show business. Yeah. Yeah. But all the, the gangster characters, the producer characters, these are just bits and pieces of a dying brain. I think so. I mean, I think that they represent disappointment and a sense of unfairness and I lack think of control. A lack of control. Mm. I think that she has a lot of excuses that are a little bit bordering a narcissistic almost. I think that she wants to believe that Justin Thoreau would have preferred her over her friend Camilla if it hadn't been for these mysterious producer forces backing him up. I do like the whole dream story of Justin Thoreau. I love the Justin Thoreau. Billy Ray Cyrus, the pool guy. (laughs) He's so perfect as the pool guy. But there's some pretty good comedy where, you know, the the fat thug comes comes in in. and and just Just like throws the the woman on top of it. Yeah, yeah. And they're all covered in pink paint. Yeah, I love that. That was all good. Because I can see what what... It buys Lynch in terms of of creative space is Mm -hmm. that if you're dealing with dream time and these bits and pieces of these stories, it gives you a completely blank canvas to do whatever the fuck you want with these certain characters. And it almost seems that whether or not he dreamt some of the scenarios or not, that the idea that, you know, Justin Thoreau's character in the dream space goes and takes his wife's jewelry and then dumps a bunch of pink paint on it. (laughs) And then she freaks out and they all end up covering, <laughs> they're covered with this pink paint yeah. in this very kind of s- sterile environment of that postmodern house. Yeah. And then he has to get in his car all covered in paint and then end up, <laughs> I, like, I don't know if, if Lynch dreamed that or it was just impulsive. Something that happened to him one day. Or not that it happened <laughs> no, to him I know, one I'm day, kidding. but like, you know, CK used to do, when he would write movies, I could never understand how you could commit. To these scripts, you, oh, you know, so where you think it was something in the moment that may have happened that day. Well, no, I just think it's something like that uh, 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 a kind of untethered creative mind will do, mm. and you'll script it out. But most other people would be like, "This is silly. Why would I put this in a, in a movie?" Yeah. But Lynch is sort of like, "This came out uh, of me uh, as it stands, mm-hmm. without editing." It, you know, I saw this. Mm-hmm. The jewelry was covered in paint. They got paint on them. Yep. Uh, I wanted to use it in this script, and I'm not going to question it. Yeah, I. that's what I love about him. You know, sometimes it lands, and sometimes it doesn't land, and I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I appreciate that he does it. There's a joke in Twin Peaks, The Return, yeah. um, about Mount Rushmore. I won't get into it, but people have seen it know which one I'm talking about. And I fucking died the first time I watched Twin Peaks, The Return. I rewound that scene, like, three times and just laughed so hard that it was painful. Because, yeah. because um, when I was little, my best friend was my little sister, 
and we spoke in a private language of jokes. And that was 100 percent the kind of like innocent, weird, nonsensical child joke that we would have come up with at ages eight and five. Yeah. And the fact that it was being presented with a budget by an acclaimed director was hysterical and amazing to me. This man is like working with his inner child in a way that no one else does, that no one else has the balls to do. Sure. And he's, <laughs> he's working with sort of breaking down that barrier between conscious and unconscious thought. Yeah. Well, what about, so what's this, the the homeless person who you told me is now in the Nun series? She's maybe one of the biggest arguments for why this should be classified as a horror movie because this lady almost exclusively does horror movies. Yeah. Her name is Bonnie Ahrens, I think. She has a beautiful natural face that I don't think she's ever done anything to, God bless her, is very angular and interesting. Yeah. And a lot of people have chosen to profit off of that in not necessarily kind ways by casting her in horror roles. Yeah, well, she's all over billboards <laughs> Yeah, right now. she's the nun. Yeah. And she's the nun, too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think she's been the nun in a lot of things. She was in Drag Me to Hell. Uh, she, she's, you know, she's playing scary people a lot. She's just covered in soot. And, like, oil. Like, yeah. her hair is shiny. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, but it's not. It, it, it's, it's just filth. Yeah, yeah, but she, it's not unusual to see homeless people in yeah. that kind of condition. Yeah, and she's sort of parked herself behind the dumpster at Winkies. Yeah, and I, I have to assume that that's a real character. Yeah, I, I think that that's. So that character, I love her so much, and I think that you can interpret her a few ways. And I think one thing to maybe keep in mind about that character is that this started out as a pilot for a Twin Peaks spinoff. And I think maybe, I'm not positive, but I think maybe that character was initially intended to be something that, that she's not necessarily in the, uh-huh. fin- in the final cut. Like, do, do you, you saw Twin Peaks. Yeah, you remember she the, could be just that she, if it were a Twin Peaks spinoff. Yeah. She could be exactly that character. She could be exactly that. I think maybe she's real, but she also exists in a world of dreams. I think maybe she's like the man from another place in the Red Room, you know? Right, but, she, but also Peaks? she's the possessor of the box that is she's the possessor that of the box. is unlocked after yeah. the death. That yeah. is the key to the death. He's of, the one who's doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she represents the uh, the dark world. I think that this character this is. Character. I, I think this character is somehow meant to 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 represent the dark underside of Hollywood. Yeah, I think this character is like humanity. The, the physic. Well, yeah, maybe or maybe of just Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. But, but but in either event, I think that she is the physical embodiment of some kind of dark, cruel thing, and she she feeds off this pain. Yeah. That that is happening to to Diane. Yeah. And, All right. Well. I still like even with all that exciting interpretation and possibilities, I'm not sure that it'll make me enjoy the movie if I watched it again more. Uh. What? I'm not saying it's a bad movie. <laughs> I'm just saying it seems like a lot of work. I mean, I imagine you you could do the same on Eraserhead on some level, but you know the weird thing is it's a lot of work to talk about, but it's not a lot of work to just sit and feel. Yeah, like okay. I knew all that shit before I knew how to explain it to you out loud. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> but like I can watch Eraserhead for a while, but eventually yeah. I get fidgety. Uh-huh. But I did but I did like that I did notice that when I, I was watching Mahalan Drive that when she starts playing the real her, mm-hmm. the real uh would it be Diane or Diane, yeah. That like I knew that there was a different frame here. Yeah. And one of them was idealized and the other one wasn't. Yeah. 
and that I was in a different realm, yes, which was, yes. turns out it was reality. Yeah. Uh, and she's such a great actress. Oh, she's amazing. This is kind of what put her on the map. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, I feel better about it. I'm glad of that. I don't feel like, well, I definitely missed a lot of things. Yeah. Because I wasn't, like, I missed the key to the movie, which is this is a brain dying. Mm. I mean, look, that's just, no one's, no one attached to the film has ever come out and officially said that. But that oh, so is this how, is your read? That's how I choose to interpret it. And a lot of people go with, if not a brain dying, they go with a dream theory. So, so I find it to be. Yeah, brain dying means it would happen pretty quickly. Yeah. But who the hell knows? Well, I mean, when your brain is dying, I imagine it can. You know, everyone says they see their life flashing before their eyes and they see the whole thing, but it takes like a second. I yeah. imagine that a brain could come up with this in the final. Yeah, it's a different time frame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've, I think I tried to work on a joke once that uh, once you start getting nostalgic for the past, that is the beginning of your life flashing before your eyes. <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at a certain age when you're sort of back in the daying it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the beginning. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, someone was watching videos of himself on Conan the other night. That was a dream. <laughs> that was a dream that I had? I, yeah, it's a dream. That didn't happen? Well, yeah, but I liked when I showed you. It was really to prove to you that I was a little heavier at some point. Yeah. And then I started watching them, and I, and I said, you don't want to watch these? She's like, not really. <laughs> well, I just was like. You are tired? I was worried that you were going to go somewhere dark if you kept watching young uh, videos of yourself. I was trying to nip that in the bud, my friend. Generally, I, I was just sort of like, I had it. I was doing all right. No, you were cute. I, you were I, cute. Your hair wasn't as cute, but you I was, were cute. Uh, I was full of the beans. You were. You were very uh, jazzy. So, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, man. You watched it? I did. I mean, I, I watched it again after not having seen it for maybe about 20 years. I was trying to figure out the last time I watched it. I think it was about 20 years ago. I couldn't figure out when the last time I watched it. But again, not unlike I've been talking about on the show proper, that there are these things I'm watching. And I realized that there's so much I just didn't pay attention to. Like, I couldn't have encapsulated the story of that film prior to seeing it again last week. Like, I, I would have said, yeah, he... He had hostages and, you know, and but I didn't remember the ending. I didn't remember mm. the beginning. Like, it just stuck in my head as Pacino, you know, doing the thing outside. And, but I didn't, I couldn't uh, remember or it never really sunk in or I didn't pay attention to properly, you know, the nuance of that movie. What made you pick it up? You just decided, oh, I haven't watched this in a while. No, we were in a hotel room and it was on Turner Classic Movie. Oh. And, you know, it was just starting. So I'm like, fuck it. This, we can't lose. With this, yeah, with Dog Day Afternoon, because and, but essentially what's what's drawing me into it is my belief that Pacino, you know, out of all of that second generation method guys, is is probably the best one, and mm. and also he's the one that can still kind of do it when he wants to, like he's willing to take risks with vulnerability. I talked to Jessica Chastain about this, I believe, a little bit, and but to see him like that you know, kind of raw and, and utterly, uh, you know, vulnerable and, uh, emotionally erratic, you know, mm -hmm. when you compare that to, uh, the Godfathers or to Serpico or anything that he was, uh, you know, outside of injustice for all, which I, I think he was in the same spectrum, but still more control. Like this character is, is emotionally complicated and they never, and it's never overwrought given right. the circumstance. And and it's so clear that 
you know, the, they, the actors within the bank and, and certainly out in front of the bank, he really had run of the place. I mean, you know, yes. the blocking was minimal. They were shooting it, you know, from medium to long shots almost always. And I don't know how much of it was necessarily improvised. A lot. Oh, really? Yeah. So as far as I know, the, the general structure was there. It was a full script. It was not a, a, an improv script, but they, they were told to be as naturalistic as possible and take it where they wanted. And this is 1970... Filmed in 74. Right. Um, it came out in 75. And this is a classic, you know, uh, although somewhat sublime 70s movie. You know, get, I mean, this is... Absolutely. An antihero, and it doesn't end well. It's not just I would I would go with you one further and it's a classic uh, transcendent seventies New York movie like totally it's very specific to New York City and all the players are like guys you know from the movies mm-hmm. and and yeah it's definitely New York at the time and I think what in 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 seeing it again how many of the issues you know this is the beginning of gay rights or, or just shortly after I don't know when Stonewall was but it's got to be right around there. Shortly after, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that that element, which is almost in passing, where the, the gay rights protesters sort of take him on as a hero, is, it's a relevant movie still. It does not—it's not dated in, in many ways emotionally, but it's Mm-mm. dated because of the technology available and that the entire thing would never have played out like that now. Sure, but that's like—it's like once you, you understand the context of the tools they had, yeah. the— emotions are exactly current like there's nothing about it that is old yeah and and also what i didn't really realize is how much comedy is in it you know Uh oddly it it from the get-go it 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 is a comedy almost that that right away like and i didn't remember this on first viewing the third gunman just sort of like i i I can't do this (laughs) and and (laughs) And that was real that was what really happened i'm sure they took a got they took a thing that was you know the actual facts of the case and realized like the i mean throughout the movie they do this they realized the the humor or the absurdity or the human foibles in what was happening for real in the moment but i think that you know that's why pacino is so amazing in it is that you know the gunman leaves and there's no money in the bank and he's got like seven women and, uh, you know, and a kind of, uh, you know, impotent security guard and a bank manager. So right away, there's there's no winning. And it's right. it's comedic because the truck already came to get the money. And immediately w- within within 10 minutes, these women know that he's not going to hurt them. They don't know right. about Saul, but they know that Pacino fundamentally is, you know, abo- he's, he's way over his head, you know, in every way. And, you know, given as the, the movie pr- progresses and you see his relationship with women and his mother and his wife, that, you know, he, <laughs> you know, that moment where he goes, who else needs to go to the bathroom? It, you know, <laughs> it's fucking over, man, for that guy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And and because of that, that's fairly early in the in the film. Yeah. And it was something I noticed this time watching it, that when you are aware of what's going to happen, when you know how the movie plays out. Yeah. The pathos of those early scenes are almost unbearable to watch. It is yeah. almost so it it is so uncomfortable to watch this guy who you you know is actually a sensitive soul who is not 
a, a maniac, a lunatic, a bad guy by any means, and watch him try to get out of this terribly stupid situation he's put himself through and do it with an amount of grace and humanity toward the people he's with his desire to be liked by yeah. the people around him yeah and to tell that bank manager that that he's okay with him his his almost uh uh childlike yearning for charles durning to be nice to him yeah like i i found myself so sad watching it this time and not because i was you know in any way like not wanting it to end the way it ends. It's just knowing that how it's going to end. The, this guy, the, the, and it's all Pacino, but the vulnerability and and fragility of this character were almost too much for me to take. But his his fragility was sort of innate where John Cazale, um, his vulnerability is, is dangerous, but he's, yes. he's painfully vulnerable. But I think what really, and I noticed this with the, in watching Paris, Texas and some of these other 70s movies is there was there was no overwriting. I mean, you know, what unfolds is that, you know, with Pacino is that, you know, he, he he's in a marriage that is uh, a disaster. He's got two kids. His wife is completely overbearing and panicked. His mother is completely overprotective. But none of that is really said. And mm-hmm. and, you know, he's playing this thing. That this guy, whether he's sexually confused or overwhelmed or whatever, he's had to put together this emotional life that that encapsulates all of that. And then and then through his decision to rob this bank for whatever reason, whether it was to get Leon money for a sex change or just to sort of like there's always that premise in these bank robbery movies where, you know, it's like, hey, it's not your money. It's insured. It doesn't matter. Why are you going to, you know. But but I just thought it was sort of amazing the subtlety of of the script and Durning was it's the best he's ever been it's arguably the best he's the greatest in it no I mean it's like and you can tell he's riffing it and he's out yeah. there and he's sweating and he's trying to manage the situation and he's Charles Durning and the two of them going at it out in front of the bank is is some of the greatest stuff I've ever seen in movies well and it's it's because there is a sense that no matter what is going on. There's a hope. There's a there's a kind of optimism in the sense that people can still reach people, right? A person can talk to another person. And let's just be people for a second here. The minute that Charles Durning comes on the phone in the bank, when he picks up yeah. the phone and and they realize the, the bank manager says it's for you, and he realizes they're screwed. Now all of a sudden somebody knows he's in there. And he gets on the phone and you hear Durning's voice. It's the first time in the movie that someone actually feels in control. Because until then, whether it's the people in the bank, whether it's Pacino, whether it's John Cazale, everyone feels like they're barely holding on yeah. and now all of a sudden you get this guy on the phone and he's like what are you even doing in there yeah what's going on in there? and he's so, <laughs> he's he's so calm and the that feeling is taken away instantly because basically the entirety of the nypd shows up to this small block in brooklyn <laughs> like it is crawling oh like it, the the fact that even back then in 1975 they were signaling very strongly about how bad over policing is yeah right and how uh, a delicate moment can be turned into just such a clusterfuck so fast by all of a sudden boom this like authoritarian dragnet shows up it's yeah. it's uh it's a very um a knowing movie about how humans 
under pressure can suddenly just crumble. Right. And and then Durning all throughout the movie is just sort of like, put the guns down, put them. Like, yes. he's like He knows that he, if he could just do this by himself, he would fix it. Right. And then it's just, <laughs> and, and, and I guess that's true. Like from the get go, having seen the movie, but even if you don't, you kind of know that it's, it's futile. Yes. That they're, they're, they, you know, from, you know, 10 minutes in, it's a lose, lose situation. That's right. As soon as as soon as institution gets involved, whether it's government, whether it's police, whether it's a bank, anything, the institution will stomp out humanity. It will end their ability to talk to each other and just re- like there's a, the, one of the very touching scenes in the movie is Durning talking to Chris Sarandon, who yes. plays Leon, a transgender woman. Yeah. I mean, th- that was a transgender woman who was being told at the time in the language of the mid 70s. Oh, you're a you're a woman trapped in a man's body. Right. And, you know, people chuckle at that and that. But that's what we we now understand that that is a trans woman who had not transitioned. And because of that is the inciting incident of the whole crime. Right. That like that. I guess that is the incentive is to get her money for the operation. Right. And he he was so fucking brilliant in it. Chris Sarandon. Like, uh, Yes. Yes. Like it was like everyone is so at the top of their game. And the other point I wanted to make about, you know, not, you know, over explaining is that it's a very brief moment where you learn two things about Kazale and and Pacino's characters that, you know, you realize at some point that that Pacino's character, one, had worked in a bank. That was clear. But he was in the military. But we don't know in, in what capacity at all. And this is just post or maybe towards the end of Vietnam, right? Uh, I mean, yes, so, it's, it's uh, the, the actual incident happened in 1972. So and then you learn, you know, again, in the same way in passing that Kazale was in prison. Yes. And, and that, you know, and because of the way those guys acted and the nature of the craft that they were involved in, uh, which is which is method, uh, you know, it, they acted the the fuck out of that without having exposition behind them. You know, the nature of Kazale's hopelessness and, 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 and his, uh, you know, willingness, it seemed at some point, I love, that's one of my favorite moments in the movie, but his willingness to kill yes. was that it was, it, it was driven by not wanting to go back to prison. Right. Right. And also, you know, when he, un, when his attitudes about women unfold later, you know, he is like that performance is, is something transcendent. You, you can't even wrap your brain around it. The focus of, of, of that. And Pacino, Pacino brought him into the film. He, he was uh, probably would never have been looked at otherwise because uh, the, the, the actual part was supposed to be a much younger man. He was supposed to probably be about the age of that, that other kid who bails, right? The one you right. mentioned, the guy who leaves right away. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Pacino, you know, was in theater with John Cazale. They were, you know, acting partners for quite a while. Then they're in The Godfather together. And he said, you know, no, no, this should be the guy. And he was absolutely right. So as the plot, uh, you know, kind of unfolds, you know, the, the, these act points, which are kind of fascinating because everything, like you said, is done. Lumet kind of was aware of of maintaining this documentary vibe and and to really let the city infuse the thing and to let uh there was always a bit of chaos on the periphery just because of the nature of the crowd which i imagine were all yeah. those people were playing themselves to some degree uh but 
these plot points where you realize it becomes hopeless. When when Kazale, his character is sort of like I, I, I you know I, you know I'm 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 uh, you know ride or die here, and mm-hmm. and Sonny uh, Pacino's character realizes that you know there's there's probably no real way out. So the demands of that era were always around. We need a plane, which never pans out. There's never been a situation <laughs> in any movie where a guy demands a plane and that works out. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just, yes. it, 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 there's just too many. It, it's just, it, but it was the only option. And then yeah. you like at the same time where they realize it's hopeless and you realize that, that Kazale will kill people and that Sonny is now lost and he's making these demands, you know, they play along, you, you know, Durning as the, the cop plays along. And then there's always that thing where, you know, you've got the detectives with their guns and you've got the regular officers with their guns. And then there's always the FBI shows up and he's like, yeah, this is my, this is my game. You let me handle this, you know, until he doesn't. Right. And right. when that, when that FBI officer, James Broderick, who is a, is a seventies guy, you see him in a lot of movies. Yeah, Matthew Broderick's dad. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. He's he's great. And he always, you know, he's, and also I didn't realize that, like, and I learned two things this morning that, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was Dominic Ternay's, right? Yeah. Uncle June. Yeah. He's plays, he plays Sonny's dad. I, I only I picked him out because of his voice. Yeah. But, but dude, I didn't know he was jo- a Johnny Ola. Like, oh, I, right, right. Yes, yes. In in The Godfather 2. I mean, like, yeah. I, I always knew that guy as an actor, but I didn't make the connection that that was Uncle June. Yeah. <laughs> like, he was one of those New York 70s actors. Yes. He's in a few movies. Same with the, the bank manager. You see him playing a sweaty guy off, that guy, Sully Boyer. And Carol Kane's there. You know, yeah, Carol I, Kane, it's, a, it's the same year she's nominated for an Oscar for uh, Hester Street. But anyway, there's a moment where, you know, you know, things break down to the point where Durning has to surrender some control. And James Broderick, as the FBI agent, comes in, right, mm-hmm. unarmed to, to, to make sure the hostages are OK. And there's a moment there that I cannot forget where he talks to Sonny and then he looks at Kazale and he says, Saul, you know, and it, there's a moment there where he clocks as an actor without saying anything that this guy can kill people. Yes. And and I think it's after that where he says, we'll take care of Saul. Right. right to, to Pacino. But that that acting in that moment where what, what happens there, you know, how you doing, Saul or whatever, where he's just sort of like, all right, this is a real problem. This yes, guy. well, you, you've talked about that before of like the idea of uh, being in front, like you personally being around someone who you know has killed someone. Yes. You're like, oh, the, the energy is automatically different. Yes. And what you're identifying there is, a, is an actor <laughs> having to communicate, picking up on that vibe from another person who's just playing a killer. But to communicate that like, oh, I have figured it out in this silent moment that this yeah. guy can kill people. In you here. saw it, right? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. the whole reason why he thinks for that moment, the FBI agent, James Broderick, thinks I can maybe convince Sonny to, to put, give throw, up. To throw this guy under the bus, too. Yes, yes. Because like, if I could just tell him that I'm on the same page knowing that that guy's a psychopath and maybe, yeah. I've, maybe I can tip him. And 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 then Pacino gets mad and says, "You think I'd sell him out?" You know. Yeah. But he, he still thinks about it for a second. Right, but but there's no indication that he would, and and that right, and it right. doesn't play that way. Right. But but also the interesting thing is, you know, now by that point in the movie, most of the women who are hostages are kind of concerned about Sonny, and yes. 
and concerned about the other women. Like there's a real sort of community happening in that bank, you know, around these women. Like they're all sort of, they, yeah, very quickly, they all realize like, oh, we're, we're you know, these guys, you know, we're in control still. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. They're, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, Sonny's teaching them how to do the gun thing. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's all crazy. But, you know, the slow burn of Kazale, you know, just sitting there and you realize that all he's locked into as the type of actor he is, is that he's not going back to jail. Right. And you don't really know anything about that guy other than this is his last ride. Right. Well, and I do love that moment. I think you you were alluding to it where, uh, you know, there's a point when the cops kind of first show up and Sonny's getting all panicky. And he says, you know, if you don't back off, I'm going to start throwing bodies out the door. Right. And yeah. It's just bluster. And 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 then Sal gets him to the side at one point and he says, you know, the, the thing you said about the throwing the bodies out, out the door are you did you mean that and you know sonny says like well you know you gotta you know gotta let these guys know you know we we, we mean business and yeah he says because because i'm ready to do it yeah meaning like he's ready to kill these people if he wants yeah. and you see that that in that moment pacino does this amazing thing where he realizes that he he is like the den mother now and yeah. he's got to do and there's a point where he's actually even complaining about it to the bank manager like all these things that he's got to do yeah. that he's like yeah oh, i got the air conditioning not working and now they got need me to go out there and get the food for you guys and it's like it's it's this thing that keeps coming up in is this motif in crime movies whether it's about the mafia or whether it's just about low level criminals like this yeah. like the work that is involved yeah, is yeah, so yeah, yeah. laborious. And yeah. like he he's as much a working stiff in this movie as, as anybody else. And he realizes it in different degrees. Like in this degree, it's like, okay, all right, now I'm going to have to figure out how to make sure that my friend here doesn't murder everyone. Yeah. Okay. And he's like, you see it churning in his head. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to take care of this part. Now I also have to go take care that they need to go to the bathroom. All right. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. And that sure. they're coming around the back. He's got to get yeah. the bank manager to move the thing. But yeah, I mean, that space, like I've been watching a lot of Mike Lee, very early Mike Lee stuff on the BBC and the allowance for space around action mm. uh, is, is a real uh, humanizer. It's a real trick. And I, I, yeah. I think it does take a certain type of actor to allow it to happen. And, and obviously more, more so a director. Yes. Well, and you have a, with, with Lumet being as good as he was and, and they worked together on Serpico. Right. So so, you know, they had a, a pattern down already. But like the 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 gift from heaven above to have an actor like Al Pacino handle that scene when he gets off the phone, first getting off the phone with Leon and then getting off the phone with his wife, these two completely different emotional levels yeah. that he's on where he's essentially saying goodbye to both of them, yeah. but in different ways. Yeah. And, and then it's, you know, I don't know, 90 seconds of virtual silence of Pacino just sitting there and having to register Sonny's utter defeat, just being totally pummeled down by the world and not getting what he wants and having to move on with that, move on knowing the next step's not going to be pleasant, but, like, what am I going to do? Put a gun to my head right now and pull the trigger? He's not going to do that either. And also, yeah, and also it speaks to this amazing kind of fragile, I don't know if I would say confused, 
but you know, chaotically vulnerable male character, which mm-hmm. you're never going to see that. That you know, without without over dramatizing, that this guy, you know, whether he loved his wife or not, he was responsible to it. It was clear that he loved his kids, and whatever his relationship was with his mother, that was some other love. And then the true love he had for this for this uh, trans person, for Leon, was something new and and something he uh, didn't understand or was overwhelmed by. And, right. and yeah, but he wasn't questioning it. You know, not in the context of the film. But to, to right. carry that emotional burden and, and to be at the edge of that kind of emotional chaos is, is, is an astounding character. And, you know, the New York City theater scene contributed immensely to having a pool of actors who, could, who you could reliably put in roles like this. And, you know, John Cazale is a perfect example of what, what was it? It's a famous like five for five, right? Like he, he only had five movie roles and they're all amazing. And his performances are great, but there is something about Al Pacino in this that was noticeable within the first two minutes of him being on screen that he is simultaneously a schlub and a movie star. And there's just no, there's no explaining it. Like it is, you can't, you can't just uh, uh, train someone to be that and have that kind of charisma. You can do right. all the method acting you want, but you're not going to come across as both uh, a, a totally broken, uh, you know, a barely respectable person, and at the same time feel the the magnetism of being a star. Well, and that's his, he's that was, able to do it. That was his thing, and I yeah. and I think like. Because I think about this when I think about these guys, and I've talked about it before, that, you know, that as some of these method actors get older, they can really kind of rest on their sort of tics and quirks and and habits uh, that that identify them as emotional expressionists. Uh, But, you know, Pacino later in life, I like I always go back to that that Kevorkian biopic on HBO. Mm. I mean, like he can really, you know, take the emotional risks you know, in a very real way, still, if he wants to, or else he's just going to like, hey, here he is. What are we at? <laughs> yes. Hoo-ha. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He can, he can hoo-ha his way through an entire movie now. <laughs> well, it's almost like the, the that he got. Uh, it, it's like it was like bad behavior that was rewarded, right? Like you know, like when he started doing that in in the in, in you know, I think it was like scent of a woman. Scar- well, Scarface was like the first one that really like tipped it off, right? And then it's like he it was Scarface, and then he was in the Dick Tracy movie. And he got like an Oscar nomination for that. It's ridiculous, but like it, it's encouraging all his like worst traits to the point where even a great movie like Heat, like the volume is turned up so loud on his performance in Heat, it's almost comical. Like it rides right to the line of being too much. Yeah, well, that's what's interesting when you see him bring it down. You know, like and, and like I, you know, I think that you know De Niro can do it, but like I wonder, you know, like for me. And, and I, I've said it before that that the the most you know soft and vulnerable performance De Niro's had in the last twenty years is in that fucking movie The Intern, and and I and I'll I'll stand by that. You know, it's not like I don't I'm, I don't mind watching De Niro, but but like he really you know he really found an emotional zone there that was sympathetic. That's the other thing about Dog Day Afternoon is that everyone is sympathetic. You know, they they never go over. The, there's no there's no villains. And they're, they're, you know, the evil is, 
is slippery. To me, it's like the evil is pressure, the pressures of life. Like that's, that, <laughs> there's, and there's no getting around that. That's just an ever-present force that, that everybody's going to have to deal with. Yeah, it was great watching it again. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you suggested to watch it because like, I, I don't know. There's, it's like one of those movies that like you think, well, yeah, I've seen it. It's great. I love it. But it, it's really worth watching and kind of luxuriating in it over again. We got to watch things as a grown up. You just, yeah. it's just, there's no way, you know, when you're 20 or whatever, you know, you just have to watch it as a grown up because your emotional spectrum has expanded to a point, right. you know, that, you know, it's fully formed. Well, and a movie like this is so good. I was thinking this in the first like 15 minutes of it is that if it wound up being a movie just about a bank robbery that was botched, yeah. it would be great. Yeah. Like it's so like the the details of actually like this screwed up robbery and how good it is and how like the 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 tension of it and how well directed it is and the placement of people, the the decision to shoot it on location is so brilliant yeah. to basically eliminate any kind of barrier between the street and the the bank, yeah. only the the glass that they keep blocking, and you know if they had shot it in a studio, like shot the the, the internal scenes yeah. in a studio, and then cut to just like okay, now we have external scenes where they're at the front. No, you needed that camera inside the bank to be shooting out on the street. So you could see that stuff and you feel like it's a unity and it's all one spot. And if you're just watching it on that level, the basic level of like, this is a bank robbery movie, it's still fucking great. Yeah, totally. But what I'm noticing about a lot of these movies with this community you're talking about and with the Method guys is that, and the 70s in general, these are, you know, character studies. They're, they're, they're character studies that, yeah. you know, the characters in these films are are equal to, if not greater than, the the storytelling. You know that right. that there's a premium put on the depth of these characters, which I don't think you see anymore. Well, and that's very that's very rooted in theatrical drama, right? There's a the the, the classical stage is a conduit of that, yeah. and um, you know that's why a lot of these people were from that that type of, of school. And I think just for myself, like as I get older and, you know, tropes are tropes and you've seen things and you, things kind of get patterns, get repeated yeah. in that, but you know, what's never the same one person's reaction to something, yeah. right? Like the way one person reacts to something is going to be different than the way another person reacts to it. And so ultimately like, that's what I care about when I'm watching something like, How's a human being responding to this? Yeah. Like what's what's the what's the personal edge right. that I can take away from this? Right. Yeah, and it's rich with that. Well, you know, sometimes we we talk about these things and you you know, you go, "Oh, I wonder like what they actually what was actually popular at that time? Like did a classic movie like this get ignored for something that wasn't as good? The the five movies nominated for best picture that year, this is insane. So it's Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, Jaws, Nashville, and the winner, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Good year. That's crazy. What a year. Great. Every movie great in its own way. And and some of them pretty classic uh, constructed movies, but just done uh, a, little, a little more. And again, even Jaws is a character study, dude. Absolutely. And Jaws is Jaws is the 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 most traditional Hollywood right. movie on that list. Right. And it still relies on the characters. Yep. All right, man. 
Good job. Well, good suggestion. Uh, we, we we should rely more on uh, uh, you know your hotel room uh, viewing choices. Uh, hopefully, they don't gut Turner Classic Movies by the time next time you're doing that. Yeah, I will. I well, I'm in this zone where I'm 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 doing I'm rewatching things, so we can definitely find more of these. Yes, let's find more of those, and then next time you talk about movies, you'll be talking about them with Kit. And uh, I think you you have one picked out, right? Suspiria. We watched it. And I I liked it as a horror movie more than I liked the other one so far. All right. Well, we'll find out why. That's going to come up soon. Okay, good. Hey, folks. This episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. To hear all the full Marin bonus episodes, subscribe by clicking the link in the episode description. Just scroll to it in whatever podcast player you're using or sign up at WTFPod.com by clicking on WTF+. And we now leave you with a story I told on the very first Mark on Movies episode about my fake balls when I was in the horror of Dolores Roach. Enjoy. Yeah, fake balls. Merry Christmas. You still have something in the pipeline. This is that uh, Prime Video uh, series with Bloomhouse, uh, Horror of oh, yeah. Dolores the Horror Roach. Of Dolores Roach. I just shot that. Yeah, and you, you're dead in it. That's not a spoiler, right? Like, you're the guy who dies. And the first guy that dies. Right, right, okay. I, I don't know if it's a spoiler. I, when, I can't wait till it comes out so I can tell that fucking, the fake boner story. <laughs> I should tell yeah. it now. Oh, I mean, that, that's a tease and a half. <laughs> oh god it was so did i tell you I'll, yeah I'll tell yeah you. you told me you had a fake boner that you had to put on did i tell you about the french guy no oh dude <laughs> so so they, they i'm in my under all day because i she's a masseuse right and that she killed you know she's a masseuse in the basement of this building that i own yeah you know, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to get like a, a happy ending, and you know, I'm the, you know, I'm the gentrifier, and yeah, you know, she she kills me during a massage, right? Yeah. So it's in the script that you know I'm dead, and I'm like you know laying there, and I got a stiffy, right? So they have to fabricate something to to make it, you know, uh, to to have the the tent in my underwear, you know? Yeah, right. And I'm going, I'm free, you know, I'm not, I'm, I didn't let them pack my my underwear with balls and shit, you know, to, for, to show, I'm like, this looks ridiculous. Uh, it looked deformed, you know, like, <laughs> cause I'm wearing tidy whiteies. I'm like, I'll just wait. I got enough dick to they pull this the, off. I the think. John Merrick package. Yeah. Oh yeah. Dude, it's just, well, it's just anything. It's just like, you know, it's a, it's like a, it's like a cup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And it's another way. I'm like, this looks ridiculous. I'll, I'll just, I'll take the hit and I'll, you know, I, 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 I'll do it just with my own dick. So, 
So they so they got to fabricate this boner. So they made me. It's just like a foam thing. Doesn't it doesn't really look like a dick. A little bit on top, so they would get the ridges. Yeah, you know. And they just want me to, you know, they, it's a strap and it goes. And but the thing, the shaft is coming up like from my taint. It's just coming sticking right up. <laughs> so they just want the tenting thing. So we, I put it on, and we do the shot, and the director's like, it doesn't look right. It's not it's not tenting enough. And I'm like, well, it's too low, and there's no balls. <laughs> I, I mean. Like, you, there's no balls. It's like, and the thing is, it looks like it's coming out of my asshole. And, you know, it's just, yeah, there's no way it could look right. And then I'm like, and then I'm sitting there with the, uh, with the, uh, with the wardrobe guy or the, uh, is he wardrobe or is he props? Uh, it might be. In this case, I hope he was props. <laughs> it's got to be props, right? So I'm like, look, dude, I mean, if we can, if I can you know, pull it up. So like it, it, it's higher up in, in the underwear, you know, and we could pin it. So like, you know, the, what well, yeah, we had to roll up the strap it was on. So it would pull the thing up. And I said, if we have balls, you know, we, it, it would look right. Right. <laughs> so he's like, Oh, the balls. Yes. It's the balls, right? <laughs> so, like, so, so we, I pin it up. So like it, it at least is higher. Right. And uh, we're going to do another shot. So we do another shot. And uh, and I tented it like differently. It was up higher. And then the director, everybody, they go cut. And everyone's in there. And the director's like, I think we got it. I think we got it. And then the French guy runs in. He's like, I have your balls. I made your balls. <laughs> he had gone and made like he'd fabricated some little foam things. Like, you know, it looked like one of those, you know, those dolls. Where they use like a, a pantyhose for the pun- and they punch you in the face, you know, to cover up. Like they, you know, if you put like a pantyhose over like a, a wad of uh, of cotton or something, you can. Oh you know, sure, you can... yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, right, right, like, right. a like a mush face. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, he kind of did that with these two things that look like balls, and he's holding them. It's like the balls, my... and they, like we're moving on. And I'm like, dude, let me have them. And, and I and I put them in. And I'm like, good job. You know, you, you do good. You did it in a pinch, and it looks right, but I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to use them. <laughs> you validated his balls, though. That's all exactly. that needed to I happen. Did. I did. 